Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. to see the turnabout here, Scott Dworkin, because, you know, Democrats, you know, traditionally have been less trustful uh, of the FBI. You go back to the J. Edgar Hoover days, the persecution of people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You now have Democrats actually defending the agency and Republicans interrogating them and reading off names inside of that walls, walls of Congress. Scott, are we just in the upside down? What is going on? Yeah, this is a little bit, bit crazy. I mean, think about it like this. Mueller caught those texts, first of all, so he's tracking everyone's communications. So that's a plus. And when he caught those texts, he removed the FBI agents. So, you know, it's not like he kept them on. If he kept them on, there might be an issue. But uh, the whole idea behind this is absurd. They're trying to concoct another kind of scandal um, linear to, to, to the actual Trump-Russia scandal, and it's just absurd. Um, when, when you attack the FBI, remember you're attacking former police officers, former people that are military officers, um, and so it's, it's again attacking our intel agents, and I, I really, it, it's, it's just absurd. The whole thing is absurd, and it's really disheartening to see uh, them trying to rip apart our intel agency like this. This is, it's really, really absurd is the only word I can come up with. So I'm here with Jeff Campbell, who recently did a great expose on Scott Dworkin and the Democratic Coalition. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you exposed in that article. Basically, I looked into... Scott Dworkin had been promoting um, a super PAC, the Democratic Coalition. Um, he'd been tweeting a lot about it. I think he mentioned it a few times on Amjoy, uh, Joanne Reed's show. Um, and they claimed that they were going to get to the bottom and, and, you know, the connection between Trump and Russia, find a way to impeach Trump through that. And they needed people to send money to that Democratic Coalition so that, you know, they could do that. And instead, he'd been paying his consultancy firm around 90% of the money of the donations wow. that came went, yeah, went to either Scott <laughs> himself or other people on the board of Democratic Coalition, which drew uh, a few flags. And so I, I looked further into Scott and the Democratic, or sorry, Scott's, um, his uh, consulting firm, Bulldog Finance. Uh, mm -hmm. So when I look, when I looked into that, I just decided I'd look into some of the teams that he had done work for, and um, and then reach out to them and see if you know they felt that you know he did a good job. Or it was just another scam where he's taking money into this consultancy and uh, not right. much work gets done. And when I looked into like the first like ten or so candidates that he'd done work for, I noticed that all of them had lost. So so far <laughs> they were <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it further reached out to a few of them, and, and they started responding. And Matt Detch, who ran in West Virginia, got back to me pretty quickly. And, you know, mm -hmm. he detailed to me that, you know, Scott Dworkin almost basically did nothing for him. He charged him a startup fee of about $1,500. And then, right. asked Scott, um, he, then he asked him to send his own lists and his own contacts of people that, you know, he could call for donations. And he told me that what right. Scott Dorton's consultancy did was basically just hand back the, a list. those numbers on, on a sheet for him, <laughs> like his own numbers on a sheet. Here you go. Call them. <laughs> the $1,600 spreadsheet, basically. Right. Yeah. Which is amazing. So he sort of started up the second thing to investigate Trump. And I'm not... I don't understand what Scott thinks he's going to do. He's not the FBI. He has no subpoena rights. What, what is, so he's taking in all of this money, and he's basically telling his Twitter followers, et cetera, that he's going to stop Trump when he has no means of doing this. I'm, right. I'm a little bit disturbed that Joy Reid has had him on the show. He's, so how does this rub off on Joy Reid and MSNBC if if they are not aware of the situation, they should be by now after your great expose. And I think now the Daily Beast has sort of tried to scoop your story. But um, we all know that Correct. you're the originator of it. <laughs> so what kind of blowback do you think Joy Reid and MSNBC are going to end up having over this? Because I don't, I don't think they can come away from this completely unscathed. Right. So, well, 
so far they've not made much of a comment, but it, it does seem quite disturbing that a, a MSNBC, which claims to be um, a news channel, and, and Joanne Reed, who, you know, just this weekend, some New York, New York Times article claimed, you know, that she's a heroine of the resistance and some amazing right. brings on people that we have proof that they've been scamming Democratic candidates and Democratic donors. Um, and she brings him on her television show and has him, you know, talk about Russia and talk about Trump mm-hmm. and be pushing that hysteria. So, like, why, if you're this big resistance figure, you're, you're, you really care about stopping Donald Trump, you want to win, why would you bring a guy who's, like, basically draining money from the very organization, the very candidates and the very people that you need? Right. You, you'll need those resources. So instead, it's going to Scott Dworkin's consultancy firm, mostly himself, so that he can, I don't know, live in his nice house, drive nice cars, and do whatever else he does. Right. Uh, and, you know, two things on that. I wonder how many people gave Scott Dworkin money because of her amplification, because he was connected to her, because he was on her show, and that led him some sort of credibility. And then the second part is the DNC should realize how organizations like the Democratic Coalition, people like Scott Dworkin, are taking money from them, more or less, because the money that could be going into the DNC coffers or could be going into these candidates directly into their campaigns is going to them. And, you know, there's only a limited resource pool. Exactly. And, well, I I honestly think that the only reason that the Daily Beast decided to finally scoop my story is because, you know, it was probably Democrat, Democratic uh, people up in the DNC or the DCCC were like, wait a second, who's this guy taking all the money that we want? Um, mm-hmm. Let's expose this. I, I don't know if that's for sure, but, you know, it had been pretty quiet. I, I had written about it for about a month before they, they then covered the story this week. So, you know, all of a sudden they started going after it. It, it does not make sense you know, for all a bunch of these super PACs and that's what's going on. It's a bunch of super PACs that are preying off of, you know, the fears of people that, right. you know, are worried about Donald Trump and, and we saw a lot of it happen with uh Republican super PACs using the fear of Obama to to make right. money during during his administration and now Donald Trump is up here and uh, a few people opportunists have decided, hmm, how do how can we make money? All these people scared about Trump and Russia. Right. Right. They are, they are pumping fear and they're taking money. And it's it's frightful that this stuff is going on. I know part of where the money went was in legal fees to defend a libel suit. Apparently they had dubbed mm-hmm. some minor Trump supporter. I think it was $2,700 he had given Trump. They had dubbed mm-hmm. him as a major benefactor, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they ended up settling this lawsuit, and I think the fees were, what, $127,000 in legal fees? And I'm pretty sure Scott Dworkin did not disclose this to anyone as he was taking money in. Do you know anything about that situation? I'm not exactly sure off the top of my head on the the numbers, but we do know for sure that $20,000, I believe, went to at least hold legal services from one law firm, and then we know further money was spent and um, on actually settling the lawsuit. Uh, we don't know them, or I don't know them as of yet. Maybe somebody has seen them because okay. another, another funny little uh, twist of the story is that the Democratic Coalition is late on their FEC filings from the last quarter. So we can't even <laughs> see how much money that Scott Dworkin additionally has taken in to uh, Bulldog Finance's consulting firm, and we can't see the money spent to pay off this guy that they wrongfully accused of being tied to terrorist links. So, um, you know, the Democratic coalition, which claims to be part of the Democratic Party, you know, accusing somebody just because um, they're Middle Eastern and because they're giving money to Trump of being a terrorist sounds awfully a lot like Republicans who are claiming, Mm -hmm. you know, anybody who's Middle Eastern and tied to Obama or whatever is also a terrorist right. or Obama's a terrorist. So it's the same, you know, uh, xenophobic craziness. And it's coming from Scott Dorkin and his, mm-hmm. his um, Democratic coalition super PAC, you know, which claims to be Democratic and liberal. So it's, it's pretty sad. And Joanne Reed and all these people are turning a blind eye, a blind eye to the fact that this is happening. And, and now that it's getting called out, I really, you know, I think people need to continue to push and, and demand that MSN 
Reed, um, yeah. give us answers. I don't think it should just be let go. I think, you know, the guys at the Daily Beast who decided to finally run the story, why don't they question Joanne Reed? Why doesn't Sam Stein ask Joanne Reed why she's going to continue to allow this guy who's, who's hurting Democrats, he's hurting the Democratic mm-hmm. Party, and, and Joanne Reed is on there every morning claiming to be fighting for Democrats, fighting against the Trump uh, agenda, but I, I, they don't care if some guy's actually hurting the people that could be helping that. It's very troubling, you know, and I feel like Joanne Reed is more interested in, in punching left than she is in doing anything other so that might be part of her motivation. And, you know, she did call Russia communist a few months back on a Twitter. I still haven't gotten past that one yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, and Russia has not been communist for a long time now. USSR is no longer even in existence. I, right. So were you able yeah. to talk to any? Were you able to talk to anybody at the DNC? Did you reach out to anybody in leadership on the situation? Well, I didn't. I spoke to a bunch of other candidates and people that had been um, within held office within the Democratic Party who worked with Scott, who also had had issues with him. I um, mm-hmm. there was a guy named William Ostrander in L.A. who was running, who had some very harsh words that I. But uh, yeah, he he definitely said Scott was scamming people. He said Scott was very rude to him on the phone. He said that Scott Dworkin actually threatened him on the telephone when he wanted to, to quit services with Bulldog Finance. He said wow, that, uh, okay. Scott said, yeah, he, he said that if you want, he, one, he said he'll sue him if they don't continue through the month. And uh, he also told him, and I believe he told Matt Detch also, that they'll never, they'll never make it in D.C. if they quit right. him. And, and, and basically bullying type of language to you know, threatening them that they, you know, make them feel bad if they actually even quit him. So not only is he a guy who's draining money out of these people, he's also strong arming them, but then goes on mm. television claiming he, he really cares about Democrats and really cares about candidates. He's hurting Democratic candidates. Um, I've reached out to some insiders that would not go on the record who also right. told me that their experience with Scott was very, very, you know, at first they thought maybe that's how it goes in D.C., and then they realized very quickly that there was a lot of turnover he, um, in his staff. He would go through hmm. people really quickly, and I was that was one of my next moves was try to, to talk to one of, you know, an ex-staffer, which I've not been able to do so at this point, but it's, it could still happen in the future. So, yeah, the overall situation going on from every person who I've spoken to about Scott Dorkin on or off the record has been a pretty negative. The, the most positive response I heard about him was neutral, as in, like, I don't really remember much, and uh, I quickly got rid of him after a month and a half, and I barely remember anything because my campaign was so wild, you know, on top of it. So, yeah. That's, it's really unfortunate that this, that this is going on, and the MSNBC network has said nothing about it. I was... Um, I know Glenn Greenwald has been a big supporter of your expose. I've seen him tweet tweeted out like I don't know five or six times now. So I'm sure that mm-hmm. that's that's really helped amplify the problem, uh, and more yeah, people are and, becoming aware of it. And Glenn and I believe Max Blumenthal both argued with Scott Dworkin because he was not happy with them sharing and called it Russian. Oh, I didn't see that. Wait, tell me a little bit about that. I did not see this. So Scott actually responded to Max Blumenthal and Glenn Greenwald when they tweeted this out? Uh, Max Blumenthal and Glenn Greenwald shared it, and apparently at that point, um, Scott's work in Saw and went back and forth. I don't remember which. He went on a back and forth with both of them, but I'm not remembering exactly right now Mm, uh, which one he said what to, but he did tell them that they're spreading Russian propaganda um, <laughs> and, and complete, bull- I think he said complete gar- shit or garbage was the word to use to describe Jeff the article. Jeff Campbell, the Kremlin agent. <laughs> yes, I'm from Russia. I, I will tell him this, the, the, the Russian that I do have uh, in my, I guess, ancestry was my great-grandparents who fled Russia from po- pogroms, but uh, if he wants to consider that Russian... It's just so bizarre. I just, it's who acts Twitter trials. They keep coming up over and over again this past year. Uh, So really that's his only response is that it's Russian propaganda. He can't really respond to uh, 
the credibility because it's all true. Your research is pretty solid. So I'm right. wondering at this point if there's going to be any sort of uh, legal repercussions for what he's doing. Uh, is he legitimately registered as a 501c4 or what is his organization structure? I believe so. He it's a it's a super PAC. I believe the problem that we're going to have with the legality of it is I would I believe you're going to have to have the donors themselves um, would have to rise right. up and, and and sue him. And so that that is Correct. going to be so you would what would have to happen is we'd have to get enough people to be aware of what's going on that have been right. donating and have enough of them that are upset that they would want to take action or want to even mm-hmm. spend on lawyers, which would then be, we'd probably need somebody to come forward and take their case if we did get enough people to come forward. So it's, I don't think there's yeah, any it's way fraud. Scott, it's, it's fraud. I mean, there's no way Scott Dworkin can honestly be catching Donald Trump in Russia's connection and, and impeaching no. Donald Trump. It's it's so, not. You know, it's so it's so asinine. I, I look at his account and I look at also Eric Garland, I think, is another one it, with what these folks are saying. And you're like, you, you have no legal standing to take Trump down in this way. I, this is beyond ridiculous. Right. Nor do you even have the ability to, to, you know, say what you want about the FBI COINTELPRO. I'm not necessarily a big fan of, of their history, but. But they're really right. the only ones that would be able to conduct that level of investigation and do something in this this capacity. So to be telling people, give me. And then there was the tweet where he said, I've, I've only taken in thousands, but I need millions. Yeah. I mean, he's asking well, he, for was, more money. That now. was a response. Yeah, that was actually a response to the article and him saying something <laughs> along the lines of they're coming after me, the Russians or whatever, the Russians and Trump boss are coming after me. And they're coming after my organization. We raised thousands, but we need millions. And they won't stop us. Something like they, they're not going to stop us. I, I read that and I was, I was like, that's completely insane. This, is, this to me is Alex Jones level insane. This, is, this yes. to me is no more intelligent as far as an argument. And, you know, Louise Mensch is another one. These, they all get together and they start spouting these things off. And you're like, wow. Mm-hmm. It's pure insanity, and there's and the sad part is that MSNBC and other major figures are are lifting these people up, giving them platform, making people think right. that they they're legitimate. And uh, I think it wasn't Eric Garland who, who was the one claiming that he that he demanded Bernie leave Vermont. I, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. I don't know if, if you remember that little tirade where he demanded that Bernie is not a Vermonter. Uh, he needs right. to leave. The, he needs to leave and go back to. I mean, the most xenophobic insanity, but it's fine. He, he can get away with it. It's fine if these people say the most insane, disgusting thing. Nobody questions it. Uh, I don't understand uh, it. To me, this is it's a disease that's on the left right now that we need to do something about because the fact that Joanne Reed MSNBC is amplifying these voices is really what the real problem is here because it does give them credibility when they don't deserve to have any credibility. And I look at that, that news station now and I shake my head because there was a time, you know, when they actually did some good solid reporting and even uh, Rachel Maddow sounds kind of a bit crazy to me now at this point. And I, I don't understand what the end game is here because it's not servicing progressives at all, in my opinion. And I think, uh, I I just think that, um, at, MWC seems like a propaganda wing of the Democratic Party or the de- Democratic messaging. It seems like David Brock, uh, you know, correct the record, share mm-hmm. and talking heads and wannabe reporters all have the, right. same, me- the same messaging. It's like the same punch left, um, hatred for Medicare for all, ha- ha- hatred for... You know, the things right. that nobody should hate them. If anything, you should just be like, uh, you know, we're going to work on it and let's let's really try to do that. But instead, they're like attacking any figure that uplifts these uh, these fights. So it's it's and then they lift up people like Scott Dworkin, who's just talking about nonsense in Russia and things that are right. never going to actually help any human life whatsoever. Nobody's going to all of a sudden be able to go to the doctor because. Scott Dworkin's researching Donald Trump in Russia. I mean, it's just not going to help any anybody. So, um, right. yeah, we need to we need to expose it. We need to, you know, I I honestly think people need to start boycotting MSNBC or at least um, protesting to the point mm-hmm. where it gains more traction and, and more eyes. And I think more people in within, you know, 
journalism or within you know media need to start focusing on this situation and and if they really care about beating Donald Trump whether you're a democrat or whether you're a green or whether you're just a left independent or uh, whatever your party you should care about journalistic integrity you should care about right. the, the democratic party actually being drained of money going to some grifter and a, and a bunch of his little pals so that's the other large problem and the DNC should realize this you know, all there's only a limited pool of money out there that's going to come from your donor base. And if it's going to folks like Scott Dworkin, it's not going into the DNC's coffers. And, you know, part of the problem, mm-hmm. I think, that we've seen in this last election cycle is they did they did kill the state parties because they weren't supporting state level parties with the money. All the money was going into the Clinton campaign, more or less. Right. We know this now. And this has caused a huge problem at the state level because they don't have any money to fight with. And we've lost so many local elections. We've given up so many seats. And Mm -hmm. now this is further causing more damage because what little money is left, if it goes to Scott Dworkin, it doesn't go to any state party level uh, candidate. It doesn't go into any congressional seat candidate. It doesn't go to the places where it should be going. It's, It's going into his pocket. So... I'm hoping to see, because of your expose, I'm hoping to see that uh, people wake up to that. I'm glad that people like Glenn Greenwald are are sharing this information. It's getting out there. I hope that the Daily Beast sends you an apology for um, stealing your story, more or less, and not giving you credit. That was a little bit bit shocking. When I saw that come out, I was like, wait a second. (laughs) I would have been fine if they had just given me some type of a uh, credit a little anything you know like as yeah yeah we noted in this report i mean like little hyperlink anything i'm here with matt detch who is a recent candidate in west virginia's third district for congress He experienced some shenanigans with Scott Dworkin's firm, Bulldog Financial, firsthand when he hired them to do some consulting work for his campaign. Let's talk a little bit about Scott Dworkin. Uh, (laughs) He's been involved in um, different various aspects of the Democratic Party, from fundraising as a consultant to um, he now runs an organization called the Democratic Coalition that has been created to, quote-unquote, resist Trump. Um, mm-hmm. You had some run-ins with his uh, previous organization, Bulldog. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's now coming to light that he's been involved in some some sort of grifting, for lack of a better word. What was your experience with him like? Um, you know, unfortunately, it was a, it was a very poor experience. The truth of the matter is, is that you know when I started running, like I didn't know what I didn't know, and that was the scariest thing about it. Um, you know, you, you get into this, you've got all these ambitions and aspirations and the next thing you know you've, you've got people asking you the first thing that people ask you is how much money have you raised what have you been doing that gets real scary um and scott solicited the services of bulldog financial um mm-hmm. fairly quickly and i think at first we kind of blew him off we tried to kind of do stuff on our end as far as raising money and it, at some point it was like okay you know what like we really really do need some help and uh you know, I'd probably get an email a week from his group or something like that. He would call along with other people, you know, that were kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, we, we, we knew that we needed money. Um, mm-hmm. We knew that, you know, we had, we had to start raising money. And um, Scott's a great talker. Um, he really sold right. his, his product. And uh, we decided to go ahead and use Bulldog um, okay. right there off the bat. And how did that turn out? Did was he able to raise money for you? Did he bring in new contacts? No, absolutely not. So financial services like Bulldog is what they'll do is they'll research people that have donated money to other uh, campaigns or other PACs or what, you know whatever, um, and then pretty much they'll um, they're, what they're supposed to do is give you a list of contacts um, and. Mm-hmm. Like there are literally like modern congressmen or people running that will spend anywhere between four, eight, ten hours a day on the phone just making cold calls to people, um, asking them for money. Uh, and what right. Scott was supposed to do, or what Bulldog was supposed to do, was facilitate um, those those calls. Basically, uh, he'd also promise mm-hmm. some other stuff, like uh, kind of like you know, like big 
like joint fundraiser type stuff up in Washington D.C. that yeah it never came through. He promised he was going to uh, come back. We're only four hours away from Washington D.C. Uh, he promised he was going to come down and help out with stuff at our headquarters, and he never did that. Um, but yeah, basically hmm. what he did, you know, my my interaction with him, uh, you know, was very. I mean, it was it was a scam. I think uh, uh, there was. Another uh, was a gubernatorial uh, candidate that we had named Jeff Kessler, who was also in the article that, that Jeff had written. Um, yeah, dealt with him too. And like, you know, the, uh, I mean, basically, what it is, is it the unfortunate reality that we have in a modern any politics, but especially you know, if you're running for Congress or Senate or whatever, is that you know, money talks and money money is basically how score is capped until votes come in. Uh, you know, you've got to basically. Is Democrats basically that don't have? I mean, granted, some Democrats do have really big funders, but especially if you're if you're starting from from nowhere, what you do is you get on a phone and you call people that have donated to other candidates. Right. Um, and what we were supposed to be doing, basically, or what Scott's side of the deal was, is he was supposed to be getting me kind of access to people that had made, you know, cut large checks. Okay. And um, you know, he was kind of facilitating that, I guess you would say. Okay, so you were paying him for services that he just wasn't rendering at the end of the day. Right, so, like, I mean, the crazy thing was is that, like, the, the, the way they set stuff up, I mean, basically what I did was I, like, I turned over, like, my phone and, like, my Facebook to them. Um, oh, okay. And they went through, and they, they, they got contacts that I already had. So, like, again, like, this, this phone time is a really big thing. There's a really interesting, like, 60 minutes on it uh, that they that came out probably, like, two years ago. Because, uh -huh. um, yeah, it's like if you run for office, like, like it's one of the stats that keep on you, too, is how often you spend on the phone uh, calling if you want right. to for money. Right, all day like, long. Like an auto <laughs> and uh, so, but, like, the only list that Scott ever gave me were, like, people that were literally in my own phone. <laughs> oh, that's insane. Need, that's insane. So, yeah, it's like I, I didn't need him to, to, to do this. And then it was like by the time I had exhausted that list, he just sort of ghosted on me. Yeah, and the thing is, like, he's like, oh, like, you never paid me this bill. And I was like, man, like, I didn't get a bill from you. Uh, if one of you, if, if someone at your office would have picked up a phone, I, I, I would have, you know, we could have, we could have sent money over to you, right? You know, but it, at that point it was like, right. it was just not worth, worth dealing with and we went our own separate ways. Um, Jeff's story was, was really, really good. Yeah, he approached me about the whole Scott Borkin issue. Uh, and he's done a really, really good job researching this. I think it's been a very, very good piece of, investigative journalism. Mm -hmm. um, after he kind of brought this stuff up, you know, I'd, I'd seen Scott and stuff on, on Twitter and all this stuff and how he's, like, investigating Trump. Um, and it's just, it's such nonsense. And I just hope people out there yeah. get what he's saying he's doing. Yeah, he's, he's asking for money to, to investigate Trump. And it's just, I don't understand what, what exactly he's saying he's doing. Um, you know, I've got... <laughs> I've got friends that work for the FBI, and they're very, very good people. Some of them are right. Some of them are left. Um, they're mm -hmm. very good investigators. Their integrity means a lot. But, like, they're going to get to the bottom of this. Like, what he is doing right. is a lot worse, I think, to the American psyche. Um, I, it's, 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 it's the worst thing that you could possibly do. I think that, you know, people are, like, somehow, like, putting a lot of false hope in Scott and, and, and things of that nature. And it's just... It's, it's really, really frightening, though, that he is using this type of fear mm -hmm. um, to get up. It's, you know, it's like, you know, like, like, the FBI's got this on lock. They don't need Scott Dworkin to come in and save the day. They're, they're doing a good job. And for Scott to come in and ask people for money, um, if any of your viewership is, is listening, uh, that would somehow think that writing Scott Dworkin a check would be a good idea, I would, I would highly advise against that. Uh, don't feed into these weird trolley flames. It's, yeah, it's Russia hysteria, basically what it is, in my opinion. And it's, very inter it's been very interesting for me to watch this sort of happen in real time because you have a group of, of self-identified left-leaning individuals that are generally skeptical of anything FBI-related. Now they go back and forth from loving the FBI to hating the FBI, not based on any sort of rational idea or, uh, or truth, but based on which which side the FBI is quote-unquote currently siding with, when what they're doing is just having an investigation. They're not taking sides. That's what they're supposed to do. It's crazy to me. And then they, they, they side with somebody like Louise Mensch, who I think is completely batshit crazy. 
all of yes. a sudden she's a member of the resistance. And I, I'm not understanding this at all. She is InfoWars level crazy, in my opinion, and she's certainly not a, a left-leaning individual. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, the FBI, law enforcement in general is, should be a neutral institution. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, and like, again, I know people, I have friends that work for the FBI. Some of them are Democrats. Some of them are Republicans. Uh, some of them right. are independents. Uh, but they don't like they don't put on a jersey when they go to work every day. Right. They go do their job, <laughs> uh, and you know it's just to have a, a real investigation. You, you you can't be influenced. You can't be biased. You know you've got to take facts as you right. know, facts. And you know I I do very much believe that the the Russians were meddling <laughs> in our election process. I think that's that's very obvious at this point. Um, to what extent I don't know, but the truth of the matter is is that. We need to, the Scott Dworkins of the world, you know, sending stuff yeah, in to Joanne Reed. Um, right. It's crazy. It's, it's next level. I, I can't take the Russian story. It's one, thing, it's one thing to acknowledge that they tried to influence our politics. It's another thing to take it to the level where these folks are saying they, they uh, hacked our voting machines, which is, I think is ludicrous. And, and I, I haven't seen I, any evidence it's not that, that the Russians have hacked the voting machines. It's, it's not helping anything. Um, exactly. It's not helping anything. It's just creating hysteria. It's not helping at all. And the FBI is going to get to the – I mean, no, whatever happened, I, like, I have full faith that they will get to the bottom of whatever it is. If Trump was, was working with them, fine. You know, uh, if he wasn't, you know, I think the FBI will figure that out as well. The worst yeah. thing that we can do is just give into this hysteria. Um, I agree. And start cutting checks to these grifters that don't know what the hell they're doing, um, and are just you know taking people for a ride. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I agree, and it's and I think it's the most the most bizarre part of it. I think Eric Garland would be another one. The most bizarre part of the situation is you see these folks all of a sudden they're best buddies with people like Jeff Flake, uh, Bill Crystal. Louise Mint. I mean, go down the list. These are these are folks that have absolutely no ideologically common interest with you, except for the fact that they hate Trump. And if hating Trump is your only motivating factor, you're not going to find the truth. No, yeah, that, that's a that, that's that's a great point. Yeah, it's just hysteria. Last time I checked, Scott Dworkin doesn't have subpoena power. I don't believe that he can serve a warrant. Uh, I don't know what it was like when, when Nixon and all the, all this stuff was going on. I, I imagine it was somewhat similar to this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind of we do this it. every 20 years. I mean, it's, yeah, it's you can go back to the House of Un-American Activities, you know, in the 30s. It seems that yeah. we, every 20 years or so we have to, tr and, and it's, it's even more ridiculous now in this day and age because the USSR no longer exists. Russia is not communist, even though Joy Reid seems to think they are. And to drum up this sort of, this hysteria over, over this is ridiculous, especially how often we meddle in foreign elections. I feel like I need to bring that up as well. We do nothing but meddle in foreign elections. This is sort of the nature of international relations. It would be another level of conversation if there was some sort of proof that they had um, hacked our election machines and elected a president. And I see people making these claims, and there's absolutely no evidence of this. As far as yeah, hacking an election machine, you know, I, I don't know that the Russians ever actually did anything to, to sway votes, but I think you know there definitely was a propaganda. Oh yeah, um, there was propaganda you know, think, from the yes. There's also, I mean, but you could also look at David Brock and his paid bot trolls. I mean, we, this is just the nature of the game we're playing. There are people trying to influence all over the place. Everybody has an angle. Everybody has a side. Um, I think the only thing we can do is just try to be more aware and of, of finding what the truth is. And I think when you get into this area of hysteria, you're no longer looking at the truth, and that makes you part of the problem, not the solution to the problem. You know, we're only at the very, very beginning of, I think, where the Internet and social media, you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, you no know, kidding. And, yeah. I, and I don't know that people know exactly how to handle this thing. And I, I, do, I, I do believe very much so that, yeah, the Russians have, like, weaponized information. Um, yeah. Um, and I don't know that it was necessarily to elect one person or the other. I think, you know, you can definitely say that, you know, Vladimir Putin had a lot of beef uh, with Clinton. <laughs> and it appears that he liked Trump <laughs> a little bit better. But I think um, they're all friends with each other. That's the funny thing. This is the this is the global oligarchy. Clinton and Trump and Putin, like all of these folks, they the Davos folks, they're all in the same circle. So this idea that 
you know what I'm saying? The idea that it's it, the, the problem isn't isn't horizontal; it's vertical. I, I don't believe that Clinton is any friend of Vladimir Putin, um, but I think that they probably, when you look at people that were playing on a, you know, world powers on a world stage, I mean, I think you could definitely draw similarities there. My point is, is that, that I don't think this is a right-left problem. It's a 1% versus everybody else sort of problem. So you recently lost uh, your election to a Republican. His name is Evan Jenkins. And Evan took over $1 million in campaign contributions for the race compared to your $64,000. I noted that his top industry was healthcare, uh, the top three, followed by the fourth company, which is CSX Corporation. They are a railway firm that's publicly traded. I know that they have been involved with transporting coal in the past, although the CEO recently came out and said that he was no longer going to invest in uh, transporting coal. But at the same time, he wants the taxpayers of West Virginia to fund the improvements on the railway system. So you're up against basically big money and a lot of it. And your 64000 mainly came from individual contributions, whereas he only took 2% from uh, individual contributions. The rest was all corporate money. So it's a very dismal situation because here is an example to me where you would want the guy who is taking money from the constituents and not the corporations to win, yet he, pre he pre prevailed anyway. So how do you perceive uh, money in politics as being the big hindrance? How do we get around it? And how do we get more voters to really understand what quid pro quo is and how it affects governance in the state? When you look at, at Evan, uh, you know, it's important to also kind of see what had happened in our state where we were actually um, a very bright blue uh, state for a very, very long time. And a lot of that was um, based on uh, labor. Uh, we won Democrat almost every election, I think, pretty much up until right. um, recent memory. It is a very poor area where people don't have a lot of money to donate to people running for office. Right. And so you've got billionaires from Kansas that can almost prey on an area like ours that can buy a seat in Congress because they can afford to, you know, throw their money in the ring mm -hmm. and basically take away, uh, you know, the voice of a place like where I'm at in West Virginia's third district, which, uh, you know, doesn't have the money to, to go up against people like uh, the Koch brothers. Why is it that voters continue to support these types of candidates, however? It seems to me that there must be some sort of disconnect. And it's not only in West Virginia. I see this happening in other uh, states as well. Is it just uh, people are turned off from voting, period, and they don't bother? Or is it they just don't understand what's the intricacies of what's going on? Um, I mean, I think it's a lot of stuff. I, I really do. I think, yeah, some of this is apathy. Uh, that's definitely there. Democrats in general, I think... Uh, don't campaign um, as well as our counterparts on the right. The GOP, uh, the right, really wants to turn things into a personality issue, um, and policy mm. kind of gets thrown out the door. I think that, you know, I always found it was very interesting where, you know, people in West Virginia started using the term, you know, like, liberal is a bad thing. You know, it's funny, you know I was kind of like, you know, right. where did this come from? You know, and it's just because I think that mm -hmm. um, you've got, you know, Fox News and your you know, Alex Jones and talking heads that are out there um, that, you know, make people kind of kind of buy into this stuff. You know, they could tell you that, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but you kind of get this, this echo chamber of just sort yeah. of talking points that you would hear from the right. And I think the right is really, really good at getting talking points in people's heads. Bernie's a socialist, therefore he's a communist. You know, Hillary Clinton right. is shrill and right. evil. And people, you know, same thing goes for all the candidates down the ticket. Um, and it gets very, very hard for, um, you know, for, for Dems to kind of keep up with that, I think. Uh, democratic policy, I believe, is, is important and it's good. It's hard to run on, on, on a thing like, uh, like health care. It's not very exciting. It's not very sexy when your <laughs> opponent is running on war on coal or, you know, any of these other, you know, things that, you know, they, uh, they really kind of build up into these frenzies, basically. <laughs> right, right. No, and I think you're correct in the sense that they have – sort of co-opted the definitions of words. Like you mentioned socialism with Bernie Sanders. It always, it always blows my mind that they bring up the uh, example of Venezuela when they discuss mm -hmm. socialism versus the example of a country like Sweden. And the difference right. between Sweden and Venezuela is that one country is totalitarian and the other isn't. It isn't socialism that's the problem. Exactly, uh, yeah. Democrat, yeah. 
but they don't seem to uh, want to have that conversation. They don't want to say, yes, Sweden's a great example. They have a uh, free market attached to a socialist government, and it works really well. They have a higher GDP. They have a much more educated population because they see education as an investment. They don't want to look at that example because it sort of distorts the messaging that they want to put out there. Uh, here in my state, um, you've got an older group of voters. Um, right. And these are people that were around during the Cold War. <laughs> and yeah. when you bring up yeah. words like socialism and then tie them to, you know, the, <laughs> the, the C word being communism, uh, you know, it, it, it strikes fear in the people, I think, still. Um, and yeah. that's, uh, you know, people don't realize that, you know, they're, yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's extremely effective. But, you know, your, your libraries, your cops, your fire department, uh, your armed forces are all <laughs> really socialist structures. It's nothing to be scared That's of. Right. It's actually a really good That's thing. Right. Um, uh, so I was actually interested in hearing a little bit about your master's thesis paper. It was on protecting American <laughs> servicemen in Afghanistan, I believe. I did my master's thesis on green on blue violence, uh, which hmm. is a term I think has kind of made the news a little bit more recently. And uh, in places like Afghanistan where we're training indigenous people, you know, that are there to kind of take over their armed forces or uh, law enforcement right. roles, is that what we had especially was really bad back in 2012, and you still see it at times today, is uh, people that, that we're training uh, are turning their, their guns and, uh, on U.S. soldiers. Big spike in 2012 back when, when I wrote it. Um, that's something that happens. So what is your opinion on, on the government contracting out military operations to these private corporations? Do you think it's had an adverse effect? Um, you know, I, I think it definitely does. I think to some extent it's a little misunderstood what's going on with some of these groups. Because I know, like, you know, the State Department was hiring groups that were pretty much solely a security guard force that kind of was made to right. look like mercenaries that I think was probably a little unfair to actually what was going on. But, you know, I, I really do have a problem with war profiteering. Um, yeah. And I think when you looked at these groups like Blackwater, Z or Triple Canopy, or, uh, they change their name every two years, I feel like. But um, when people <laughs> yeah. start, you know, really, you know, uh, using conflict for profit, you know, I think that's definitely a, um, a moral you know, issue that should definitely right. raise some eyebrows. Companies like your Raytheons and stuff that are <laughs> just making money hand over fist. It seems to me that the priority is to have these companies to allow themselves to enrich themselves further as opposed to actually care for and protect the men that are putting their li and women that are putting their lives on yeah. the line for, for us. You know, paying for, yeah, paying for, for health care, paying for pension, you know, doing these other things, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not as exciting. There's no profits really to be made there. And the unfortunate thing is, is that your state of West Virginia, we've got 12.9% of people in my state have served. That's a high number. Do you, do you feel, find that's relative, um, relative to the poverty rate? You know, I think that there's there's definitely something to be said there. While we've got, you know, a lot of people that serve, I would say the vast majority are enlisted. These are people that are going pretty much straight from high school um, into the into the Army, into the Navy, uh, what have you. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that we, that we lack here is, is opportunity, and the military can, can, can give that to a young person um, that's coming out of high school. Uh, and right. the people that especially can't afford higher education, uh, you know, the military does offer some pretty good. Right. I actually had the pleasure of attending UC Irvine with a couple of ROTC-funded uh, students, and they were some of the smartest ones I met and came across while I was there. And even when, when I was in college, before I even dreamed of joining the military or thought that that was something I was going to do um, down the road, kids that were there that were a little bit more grown up and they were coming back and working on uh, their um, Montgomery GI Bill, um, you know, those are the, those are some of the, the hardest working, best students that were there. <laughs> yeah. So, someone with a grad degree. I also have a grad degree. Um, do you do you see education as a public good and an investment? And do you think we should be doing something to uh, refinance our public university system? Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, I think that. Um, I mean, I, I can't think of a better thing to put money into. To be honest with you, when we talk about right. public funds, you know, I, I really view education as that. Um, investment, you know, I would always talk about, like, my grandfather was a coal miner. His family uh, was from Hungary. Uh, he was the first person in his family to speak English. I mean, what got him out of the coal mines was public education. It was, it was going to school. 
Um, mm-hmm. He worked worked his way, you know, through the you know, in the mines uh, through law school. Um, you know, and basically, you know, got out of you know mining back then, especially with an extremely dangerous job. Um, right. You know, and kind of chased that American dream. Um, and he wouldn't have been able to do that if education weren't something that was there for him. You know, and I think that when you look at a state like like mine, um, that's one of the most important things that we can do. Coal and stuff, you know, like our no, like our greatest resource here in the state is our uh, young minds. Um, M-I-N-D-E-S, yeah, I agree. M-I-N-D-E-S. Um, and I think, uh, <laughs> you know, it's very, there's there's nothing better that we can spend our money on. Minds over minds. <laughs> yes, That's a exactly. Good slogan. So you believe in developing uh, an industrial hemp industry in West Virginia. Apparently the climate there is very uh, conducive to these types of plants. What would the benefits be to the economy? And more importantly, how would you get around uh, the existing federal drug laws? You know, so I think that, you know, when it comes to uh, industrial hemp, and this is something I'm not really uh, an expert on. It's definitely something that, that people are into, and I listened to a lot when right. I was, um, when I was out, um, on the trail. And there's actually um, a really neat guy who I believe is running again in West Virginia's first district. He's actually a hemp farmer. Is his, uh, okay. his job. He's, his name's uh, Mike Manypenny. And he could give you way better info on hemp than I ever could. My my understanding though is that yes we we have a climate that we're able to grow hemp in that's very good. Uh, you know the big problem that West Virginia has with agriculture is we are the mountain state. It's very hard to find any flat land, let alone something you know that you can farm on. We don't have the big farms you see out west uh, on a hillside, which is how, which is my understanding of how hemp grows. The really really neat thing that I've seen um, uses uh, there's polymers and, and things of like that, that that can be used for hemp. You can use it for energy. You know, we've all seen kind of the uh, the ways that you can, you know, weave it in the ropes and kind of like a like a fabric. I would love to see our state kind of get on the forefront, you know, to try, to try to lead in this area. I think that when you look at, um, you know, what's happening, especially with, with coal, because we've got to transition to something else. Yeah, and absolutely. Why not hemp? You know, I think uh, the issue with the federal stuff is that for some reason hemp um, is, a, is, I think, it's still scheduled um with, with marijuana, which is then a Schedule One drug, which is a whole other craziness. But, yeah, I think that, you know, you definitely have to work with the FDA and just, I think, you know, there's nothing, there's, you know, chemical quality to hemp that uh, you know, people can get high on or, you know, have any issues with. And, um, <laughs> I think right. that um, my understanding is, that too, is that the state has issued, I want to say, like, eight or nine permits to different farmers. As I said, Mike. Uh, okay. Many penny up in the, up in the north is is, is farming hemp. Um, it is legal to an extent, but it is um, it is being watched uh, and regulated, and not not really something that's, that's out there kind of in a, in, a, in a free market use yet that I know of. And I think there's um, a push to change, and I'm I'm 100% behind this. I don't think marijuana should be illegal. I'm I am 100% for legalization, and I think drug addiction is more of a public health issue than a criminal one. Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think we need to have a shift in the way we we see that. So uh, now let's get to your previous career. You were a Secret Service agent under both the Bush administration and the Obama administration. Do you have any stories that are not so secret about being in the Secret Service? Uh, yeah, oh my gosh, I don't really even know where to start. Yeah, I guess I mean yeah, I started working there <laughs> in um, 2008. Uh, it was yeah, the very end of the Bush administration, uh, got out of training right around the campaign. Um, okay. And then, uh, you know, pre- obviously Obama won um, and was, was at the White House for about two years. Uh, a lot of what I was doing was just being, you know, a fly on the wall. Kind of saw a lot of really, really neat things happen as I was there. After about two years, I went to the foreign missions branch that we have. They deal with kind of the um, foreign embassies that are in that area up in Washington. Okay. And yeah, I got to travel uh, all over the world. I got to go to Indonesia. I got to go to Ireland. And it's just uh, at the end of the day, that agency is a very, very hard one to work for. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff about um, you know, how people are treated, morale, pay, and stuff like that that you can, I'm sure you can find online <laughs> um, where it's, it's not a great place to work. But I definitely work with uh, some of the best people in the world, and uh, I'm very, very proud of that. Excellent. Yeah, no, it's a tough job. I think it's a dangerous job. Um, Believe it or not, you are the fourth Secret Service agent I've known in my life. I've had a higher quota than normal. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Uh, 
one of my other friends that is still in Secret Service works for the the fraud division, where they, um, which is odd to me that this is part of the Secret Service, but they go after uh, bank fraud, check fraud, all kinds of things in this nature, yeah, so white, white collar crime. Things I think people don't understand about the Secret Service is that that's, that's what it was started to do. I mean, that's why it was started Some, back in the 1860s after the Civil War. It's like a third of the currency uh, in the U.S. was counterfeit. And in a touch of irony, Lincoln, uh, the day before he was assassinated, signed the Secret Service into uh, existence, but that was to, that was to, to fight that um, use of counterfeit currency. It was definitely theirs for, uh, for financial crimes, basically. So you folks had a governor that switched parties to run as a Democrat, and he was fully supported by the DNC, fully supported. And then he switched back to being a Republican. Why would the DNC get behind a guy like that, or, or Joe Manchin for that matter, and not get behind somebody like you who is actually going to make progressive change in the state? Uh, what Jim Justice's contacts with the um, DNC were exactly? I do know that you know our, our state party really went all in on his campaign. I, I don't know. I mean, it just it, it makes me sick every time I think about all the uh, well, it doesn't make all sense. the backing that that, that that he got, and then um, you know I think uh, <laughs> oh Donald Trump came down here and and you know waved his magic wand, and you know all of a sudden right. justice comes out that he's a Republican, and like he'd been fighting tooth and nail with Bill Cole and these Republicans. <laughs> for two mm-hmm. years prior, and then, um, you know, they welcome them with, with their arms, and I think the Democratic Party here was kind of shrugging, like, I don't know what to do about it. Well, here's the thing. Here's what you do about it. You don't, you stop backing candidates that are clearly not for progressive values, like Joe Manchin, like Justin. You know, you can't tell me that it's not possible to win a progressive election in the state of West Virginia because Bernie Sanders won all 55 counties against Clinton, and he's clearly far more leftist than she is. I think what people are reaching out for in Trump is that he basically said he was going to do something about jobs, and and you've got a starving uh, working class that gets painted as being poor and racist, and I don't think that that's a correct way to paint the situation, but I think that's what's happening. And that's being used as sort of an excuse to thwart the um, the liberal economic policies that would help everybody. Oh no! I mean, I, you know, there's definitely a reason that I'm a you know left leaning Democrat. You know, I mean, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. I, you know, I get like you know West Virginia until you know recent recent memory. I believe because the labor you know really was you know a blue state. And I think that you, you, you are correct that, that people did identify with Sanders' message better than they did Clinton's. The problem that, we, that we've got now, though, is that people, you know, I think Democrats are still, or, you know, people on paper are registered Democrats. I, I think it's still like three to one um, okay. in this state for anyone all 55 counties. That's true. But there's a lot of people there that were voting for <laughs> Trump that are kind of secret Republicans in a way, you know, that uh, I think also just just would not go in uh, uh, Clinton's name on a ballot. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know that it was necessarily that, that Bernie won it as much as Clinton lost it. I, yes, yeah, 100%. There's, there's Clinton lost it. I think there's um, a lot to be said about it, and it's not just in West Virginia. The, the, I think a lot of the folks, I mean, look, Clinton lost a big chunk of, of her own quote-unquote base. There were Democrats, for example, in Michigan, registered Democrats, that did vote for Trump. There was 9% of the registered Democratic Party that didn't vote for president. They only voted down ballot. She didn't hold on to her own base, and I think a big reason why has to do with why Trump took those votes. Even though he's a liar and he's wrong and he's garbage, he sold this populist message that I'm going to do something about the working class and about jobs in the country. And when you have severe income inequality, that's going to resonate. And Bernie had a left, uh, a leftist message that was along the same lines. And I feel very strongly that, my, and I would say the same thing as to Brexit, is that the left didn't, didn't offer an option out of the situation that we're in. And we clearly need to do something about the income inequality in the country. Yeah, like you're you're hundred you're hundred percent right, and um, you know, I I just think that the, you know the left really you know like what we campaign on is is policy, um, and it's pretty boring policy. You know, people don't really want to sit and talk <laughs> about you know people don't want to sit and talk about healthcare, fifteen dollars minimum wage. Like that's a cool conversation for about thirty seconds, and then I think people get kind of bored. 
but when you get a person that is a um, you know just uh, spitting you know um, venom and like Donald Trump, really low hanging fruit all the time, getting people riled up mm-hmm. about you know and it's it's I I'll be the first it's not true but you know about immigrants coming and taking your jobs or you know MS13 coming across the border, that that fear and, and, and vitriol that he uses scares yeah. people to the ballot box. You know, I think we saw a very excited base with Obama in 2008 and 2012, but you know, right. Hillary Clinton wasn't wasn't exciting people and getting into the polls. Whether it was through people no. being excited for her or through fear, I, I, you know, I don't want the left to use fear as a tactic to get people out to the ballot box. People are scared about their jobs. They're scared about their future. They're scared about the world their kids are going to grow up in. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, Hillary Clinton. Eight billion dollar plan that was going to help out West Virginia, and the truth of the matter is, is that you know people were you know having to wake themselves up and yawning by the time she was done talking about it. Uh, you know, where yeah. you've got a Trump that can come in and fire everybody up, and you know they're you know ex- excited to vote for him. Well, I think there's two things going on here. I think the fact that anybody was excited to vote for Trump is frightful, but I I think you've tapped into something that is very real. You have a Trump isn't a disease; he's a symptom of the disease. The disease is is the state of the economy, the income inequality, the poverty, the uh, failed neoliberal policy, and people are they don't understand the reasons why they're making less money than they used to make, but they know that they are. So when he ra- he wanders in and says blame the brown people, they go okay. Uh, unfortunately, sure. because we still have a lot of racism in this country, there, there's that. I think uh, the other part of the conversation is that Clinton was not the right candidate to run against that sort of populism. She was, she is seen as part of the neoliberal policies that led us to this place, whether it's uh, her husband getting rid of Glass-Steagall. I mean, you can go down the list. And she's mm-hmm. also perceived as somebody that's not trustworthy, who has made promises then done the opposite, has a public opinion versus a private one. So I think I think you're right when you say she lost the election to probably one of the most inept candidates I've ever seen in my lifetime, ever. I don't see how how <laughs> I don't see how you frame this any other way. So my concern going forward, though, is that I do think we can have a worse person in office than Trump. I don't think he's as bad as it gets. So my my fear at this point is you're right. We have um, we have a right wing uh, group that is is creating a lot of fear in the country. And they're using the fear to generate votes, and it's working. And we have the left side, my side, that doesn't seem to be doing anything about it and is still taking money from a corporate donor base that does not have the Democratic Party platform as part of what it wants. So there's a conflict there. And then we have a whole group of consultants that are more concerned about making money to get back to guys like Scott Dworkin. And I'm really interested in, in, in putting progressives in office. So my frustration at this particular junction is fixing the left, because if we don't fix ourselves, it, it does get worse. Would, would you, um, so what advice would you give to somebody that's running in the state currently? You have a crop of West Virginians that are now do, attempting to do what you did last year. It's a really hard district to run in. Um, it's, it's huge. Um, there's not a yeah, lot of huge. real real population centers. You know, it's a it's a really tough area to navigate. I found I think that really you know the best thing that you can do as a candidate, especially when you don't have money, um, is to go door to door. When you do go when you do go door to door, and when you do meet meet voters face to face, that's really I, I believe the most important thing that you can do um, because mm-hmm. you know when, when you when you take the the smartphone or the laptop out of the equation, if you will, um, and talk to people about what their problems are, what they want, what they want to see in Congress, um, whether that person is super far right wing or whether they're super far left. Like, I, we, we really, really do agree on a lot of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And in the world that we live in, it's, it's sometimes really hard to find that common ground. But meeting people face-to-face, listening to them talk, listening to what their problems are, is a candidate um, no amount of money to a, a consultant, no mailer, no, you know, no TV advertisement, no website or, you know, uh, social media marketing campaign uh, is going to be as valuable as that time that you spend actually talking to your voters. So whether it is going door to 
Oh, I agree. I think uh, just getting out there and talking to as many constituents as you can is probably the answer. Good advice. All right, one last question. Sure. Ready? Let's go. Guinness or Bass? Um, no, I'm definitely uh, definitely a Guinness guy. 